Hello, thanks for listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. This is Adam Rosen, your host. I'm a fellowship-trained orthopedic surgeon who specializes in joint replacement. In these episodes, I'm going to share with you a lot of my tips and tricks and review classic articles and current implant designs. Thanks for tuning in and on with the show. Hello and welcome back. This is Adam Rosen and you're listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. So if you've gotten this far, uh, thanks for listening and yeah, thanks for kind of putting up with my dribble. Um, I hope that you've been finding all this information helpful. It's a, a lot of information and stuff that's sort of hard to get in a book or get across in words per se and sometimes hard and difficult to verbalize in the middle of a case. So as we go on, I'm just going to kind of keep giving you some more of this information. And, you know, we're almost out of the operating room, uh, but we're going to get into the ever important aspect of the post-operative rehabilitation in the future episodes. So I just wanted to lastly go through a few reminders of things that I've touched on throughout this operative procedure um, and things to kind of keep in mind when you're doing this surgery. So um, first, we're going to talk about, again, risks of malposition. So, you know, we have these aims of what we're looking for. Still, we're not 100% sure as to what an individual patient should be set at or placed at or what our actual goals are. Um, but we we have an idea going in. This is what I'm aiming for. So how to prevent that? Well, again, intramedullary hole creation. So if you're doing IM on the femur or the femur and the tibia, that where and how you create that intramedullary hole um, can affect the position of your cutting guide, and that can ultimately affect the position of your alignment. Um, and again, for bowed tibias, more specifically, even if you're using an intramedullary alignment rod, you have to be aware of when that can affect your alignment goals. The second thing would be pinning the block. Again, when you pin, and a great way to test this is every time that you pull the block off, does it slide off with ease and are your pins parallel? Because you could flex them, extend them, put them in varus or valgus. And if you're putting these pins in and you're altering the position of the block, that is going to alter your cut. That's going to alter your alignment. And then cutting the bone. Again, if you're changing the position of your hand, and you can notice this by the sound, uh, or the feel of the saw, but also look at the saw at the end of every case or at the end of every cup and see, you know, are you scuffing? Because sometimes that gives you immediate feedback are, you know, is the blade riding on the block here or there? And it allows you ways to adjust your hand real time, but how you cut through the block or on the block can affect the alignment. And then again, lastly, cementing that when you're impacting these implants, especially in soft bone, or when you put the implant into the cement, you need to make sure that you're flush and parallel, that you've achieved the alignment that you were aiming for and you haven't left the implant in flexion, extension, varus valgus. Um, also, lastly, um, when we're cementing is hyperextension. You don't want to put this thing into hyperextension, which can cause some tibial liftoff. And the other last thing with that, that um, remember that when you squeeze your hand, don't fire your bicep. And again, this is important with the tibia that, you know, if you grab the tibial handle, the inserter, and you squeeze and you pull, and then you impact that you're potentially causing anterior slope positioning of your tibial component. Um, next thing. So using the saw, um, 
hopefully for a lot of you, you've built stuff, you know, but, you know, again, if, if you haven't used a saw before, you know, sometimes using a saw is a new thing. You know, if you've ever picked up a chainsaw and you've been cutting a tree into pieces, you never put the blade and the teeth on the, the log or on the tree and then fire it because it's going to kick back and whack you in the head. So you get your blade started away from the bone and then move onto the bone. So when you're cutting, that doesn't cause the huge kick. Um, also, you know, control your hand. And a lot of times it's a matter of touching something or grabbing something. So for me, right knee, right-handed, saw on my right hand, a lot of times I can put the owner side of my left hand on the tibia and then I can rest my right hand on the radial side of my uh, left hand by my second MPJ. And it just gives me some positional control of my hand in the saw. So you're not trying to hold this out in outer space, but also learn your tendencies, you know, on the femoral cut, on the tibial cut, on the right knee, on the left knee. You know, do you have a tendency to drop your hand, raise your hand? So if you start to look and watch and you start to recognize what your tendencies are, you're then able to correct those deficiencies or tendencies so all of your cuts become flat. And then again, on the tibia, you know, my big little trick of um, going from medial, medial, lateral, medial of the plateau, and then central, and then the medial of the lateral plateau, and then lastly, the lateral of the lateral plateau. So as you go across, it's one flat plane, um, but this way, the tibial cut jumps as the blade gets into that danger zone of the soft tissue. Um, and then also when you're making your bone cuts on the femur and the tibia, taking the osteophytes off pre-preparation to one, increase that mobile window philosophy, but also to allow your saw blade to exit cleanly and to prevent those marginal fractures. Okay. Um, third, um, tips there, decrease the risk of infection. So again, I'm a huge believer in don't move the lights. So if you can get away without moving the lights, set them up before the case starts and try to leave them there. You know, the more you move them, especially if they bang into one another, there is that risk that it could drop debris onto your field, which may increase the risk of infection. Um, two, limit the traffic. You know, really you have to be in, as a resident or a fellow, maybe hard to be in that role. Um, should be the attending's job to call people out if they're coming in and out of the room unnecessarily. But you can also, you know, place new flyers and things on the door as reminders to stop um, keeping people out and, and just reminding the staff to reiterate to other people that may need access that they can always call if they just have a question just to not bounce in and out of the room. Uh, and irrigate. You know, the solution to pollution is dilution. So irrigate, irrigate, irrigate. You know, I always go through at least uh, two liters in, in each case and, and typically have very specific times where we go through 500 so we can remember at different parts throughout the case to irrigate. Um, and lastly, being efficient. So being efficient isn't rushing. You know, you, you're driving through traffic and you got some Yahoo that's weaving left and right and front and back and slamming his brakes and then you get up to the exact same red light and you're right next to one another. You know, he's wasted a lot of brake pads and gas and his heart's racing and he hasn't gotten to that point any quicker than you have. So the same thing in the operating room. I find that when people try to rush, you're more likely to make mistakes. You're more likely to misplace things. So, you know, be efficient by having a plan. You know, when you walk in the operating room, as the attending, you can create your plan as to these are the steps and these are the order that I want to do it. Um, but as a resident or a fellow, if you're working with an attending, you want to know what their steps and what their plan is and follow that plan. Because if that's their plan and you're following their plan and the techs and the team all know the plan, then everybody has their job and they're doing the correct thing at the right time. 
you know, they're not setting up the things for the femur when you're ready to do the tibia. Um, so having a plan is really important. And then also, again, may not be in your control early on, but the idea of teams. You know, it's been proven that having a team that knows the steps and knows the procedure and knows the instruments, that is a way of being more efficient. And the more variables, the more people, if you have a new first assist, second assist, uh, circulator, the more variables that are not used to being as part of that team can increase your surgical times. Uh, the next thing is muscle memory. So the way to be efficient is with practice. You know, nobody gets good at pitching without pitching a lot of balls and nobody gets good with shooting free throws unless you shoot lots and lots of free throws. Um, so practice and practice and practice with a lot of the new VR stuff. Fundamental surgery has these great new um, VR ways of practicing procedures um, that you could then do virtually. Um, you can also do this mentally. So sitting back, and it's going to be a future episode where I'm going to have you sit back, and I'm actually going to go through beginning to end the whole procedure, but really thinking what are the steps, but not just the steps, but what are my hands doing? Where are the retractors? And what does the knee look like? You can go through that mind mantra of you know what you're doing and how you're doing it to create those little patterns in your brain of what's going to be the next steps. But eventually you get to the point where your hand is just going to go in the right spot, um, but it's going to be dependent on the instrument system that you're using because, you know, the angle of the chamfers, for example, is going to be different, but also how much bend one attending puts in the knee when you do the femoral preparation is going to change the angle or the muscle memory of your hand when you're using the saw. So over time, as you do things the same way over and over again, you're going to develop that muscle memory, and then that is going to make you more efficient. And lastly, and I'll, I'll leave on this, is this mantra of, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. You know, I'm not really sure where this, uh, who came up with that first, but it's something that you can hear about in a lot of things. You know, I actually used to skydive years ago and, you know, we were in this speed competition and, you know, the idea was, you know, how many points can you get between a certain, um, you know, height that you're exiting the airplane at and you had this time window. And again, it's one of those things where you could be overly anxious and rush, 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 and then you're less precise, less specific, so you're not going to turn as many points. But by being smooth and moving slowly, you may be more efficient. And the same holds true in the operating room, that if you try to rush, 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 I'm sure you've seen it. You know, you're trying to rush to race a time on the tourniquet per se. Don't worry about that. But if you move efficiently and your hands are very purposeful, you're going to be more efficient at the end of the day. So the easy thing that you can use to actually make yourself more efficient based on that protocol. The idea of slow is smooth, smooth is fast, is when you get back into the operating room, just think about what your hand's doing and when it's empty. And what I mean by that is if you have a tool in your hand, could be a pair of pickups, could be a rancher, could be a saw, whatever it is, and then you hand it back to your scrub or you put it back on the mail, and then you bring your hand back up to the surgical field empty, and then look at what you're doing, and then think about what the next step is, and then reach back, and then from the scrubber, from the mail, get or pick up next instrument for the next step. That is a wasted movement. So if you can train your brain that every single time, and again, if you move slowly for a few cases where your hand purposely comes back and hands off, but stays there because you may, in the beginning, have to think, what's the next step? What is the instrument I need? And then pick it up and then come back with the instrument that you need. That movement 
has now become more efficient, even though you're moving slowly and you'll create that muscle memory. And then with a team, you know, those movements become a lot more purposeful, which has made your surgery more efficient. Um, so I really, really hope that you take a lot of these points from here and can utilize them in your training, in your caring of your patients to potentially give them a better experience, better outcome. That's really the whole goal here is I'm trying to teach one person one thing that allows you to help one patient. And if I do that, um, then all of this was worthwhile. Um, so again, um, you've been listening uh, to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. Um, please subscribe if you haven't already. Please share this with a friend if you think they would like that. And if you have ideas, topics that you would like me to talk about in season two, um, just shoot me an email. This is Adam Rosen, and I will talk to you next time. You've been listening to the Total Knee Tips and Pearls podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed so you'll be notified of future episodes. And please take the time to leave a review. It helps other people like you find the show. Until next time, stay safe.